Hey sis, welcome to Girl Good Nightmares, where we help you sleep in melanated peace with a spooky twist. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into the show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading The Undertaker, a short story written by Alexander Pushkin in 1831. Alexander S. Pushkin was a Russian poet, novelist, and playwright born in 1799. Pushkin's father was a member of the Russian noble family, and his mother was the granddaughter of an African general, making him biracial. At age 15, he wrote his first poem and established himself in the literary community. He is now known to be the founder of modern Russian literature. He died in 1837 as a result of a duel between himself and the man that was allegedly having an affair with his wife. The Undertaker is the story of Adrian Prohorov, an undertaker who has recently moved to a new place. He is invited to a wedding by his new neighbor and has a little too much to drink. Feeling insulted, Adrian leaves the party and falls into a drunken slumber where he is visited by the corpses that he has previously buried. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. The Undertaker. The last remaining goods of The Undertaker, Adrian Prohorov, were piled on the hearse, and the gaunt pair, for the fourth time, dragged the vehicle from Basmania to the Nikitskia, whither the undertaker had flitted with all his household. Closing the shop, he nailed to the gates an announcement that the house was to be sold or let, and then started on foot for his new abode. Approaching the small yellow house which had long attracted his fancy, and which he at last bought at a high price, The old undertaker was surprised to find that his heart did not rejoice. Crossing the strange threshold, he found disorder in his new abode and sighed for the decrepit hovel where for 18 years, everything had been kept in the most perfect order. He began scolding both his daughters and the servant for being so slow and proceeded to help them himself. Order was speedily established the case with the holy pictures, the cupboard with the crockery, the table, sofa, and bedstead took up their appropriate corners in the back room. In the kitchen and parlor was placed the master's stock in trade, that is to say, coffins of every color and of all sizes. Likewise, wardrobes containing mourning hats, mantles, and funeral torches. Over the gate hung a signboard representing a corpulent cupid holding a reverse torch in his hand with the following inscription. Here coffins are sold, covered, plain, or painted. They are also let out on hire and old ones are repaired. 
The daughters had retired to their own room. Adrian went over to his residence, sat down by the window, and ordered the samovar to be got ready. The enlightened reader is aware that both Shakespeare and Walter Scott have represented their grave diggers as lively, jocular people for the sake, no doubt, of a strong contrast. But respect for truth prevents me from following their example, and I must confess that the disposition of our undertaker corresponded closely with his melancholy trade. Adrian Proharov was usually pensive and gloomy. He only broke silence to scold his daughters when he found them idle, looking out of a window at passers-by, or asking too exorbitant prices for his products from those who had the misfortune, sometimes the pleasure, to require them. Sitting by the window, drinking his seventh cup of tea, According to his custom, Adrian was wrapped in the saddest thoughts. He was thinking of the pouring rain, which a week before had met the funeral of a retired brigadier at the turnpike gate, causing many mantles to shrink and many hats to contract. He foresaw inevitably outlay his existing supply of funeral apparel being in such a sad condition, but he hoped to make good the loss from the funeral of the old shopwoman. Tirahina, who had been at the point of death for the last year. Tirahina, however, was dying at Baskali, and Praharov was afraid that her heirs, in spite of their promise to him, might be too lazy to sin so far, preferring to strike a bargain with the nearest contractor. These reflections were interrupted unexpectedly by three Freemason knocks at the door. Who is there? inquired the undertaker. The door opened and a man, in whom at a glance might be recognized a German artisan, entered the room and a cheery look approached the undertaker. Pardon me, my dear neighbor, he said, with the accent which even now we Russians never hear without a smile. Pardon me for disturbing you. I want to make your acquaintance at once. I am a bootmaker. My name is Gottlieb Schultz, and I live in the next street, in that little house opposite your windows. Tomorrow, I celebrate my silver wedding, and I want you and your daughters to dine with me in a friendly way. The invitation was accepted. The undertaker asked the bootmaker to sit down and have a cup of tea, and thanks to Gottlieb Schultz's frank disposition, they were soon talking in a friendly way. How does your business get on? inquired Adrian. Oh, oh, replied Schultz. One way and another, I have no reason to complain. Though, of course, my goods are not like yours. A living man can do without boots, but a corpse cannot do without a coffin. Perfectly true, said Adrian. Still, if a living man has nothing to buy boots with, he goes barefoot whereas the destitute corpse gets his coffin sometimes for nothing. Their conversation continued in this style for some time, until at last the bootmaker rose and took leave of the undertaker, repeating his invitation. Next day, punctually at 12 o'clock, the undertaker and his daughter passed out at the gate of their newly bought house and proceeded to their neighbors. 
I did not intend to describe Adrian's Russian caftan, nor the European dress of Akalina or Daria, contrary though this be to the custom of fiction writers of the present day. I don't, however, think it superfluous to mention that both maidens wore yellow bonnets and scarlet shoes, which they only did on great occasions. The bootmaker's small lodging was filled with guests, principally German artisans, their wives, and assistants. Of Russian officials, there was only one watchman, the Finn Yurko, who had managed, in spite of his humble position, to gain the special favor of his chef. He had also performed the functions of postman for about 25 years, serving truly and faithfully the people of Pogloresk. The fire which, in the year 1812, consumed the capital, burnt at the same time his humble sentry box. But no sooner had the enemy fled when in its place appeared a small, new, gray sentry box with tiny white columns of Doric architecture, and Yurko resumed his patrol in front of it with battle axe on shoulder and in the civic armor of the police uniform. He was well known to the greater portion of the German residents near Nikitsky gates, some of whom he had occasionally even passed the night from Sunday to Monday in Yurko's box. Adrian promptly made friends with a man of whom, sooner or later, he might have need, and as the guests were just then going into dinner, they sat down together. Mr. and Mrs. Schultz and their daughter, the 17-year-old Lockton, while dining with their guests, attended to their wants and assisted the cook to wait upon them. Beer flowed. Yurko ate for four, and Adrian did not fall short of him, though his daughter stood upon ceremony. The conversation, which was in German, grew louder every hour. Suddenly, the host called for the attention of the company, and opening a pitch-covered bottle, exclaimed loudly in Russian, the health of my good Louisa. The imitation champagne frothed. The host kissed tenderly the fresh face of his 40-year-old spouse, and the guests drank vociferously the health of good Louisa. The health of my dear guests, cried the host, opening the second bottle. The guests thanked him and emptied their glasses. Then one toast followed another. The health of each guest was proposed separately, and then the health of Moscow and of about a dozen German towns. They drank the health of the guilds in general, and afterwards of each one separately. The health of the foremen and of the workmen. Adrian drank with a will and became so lively that he himself proposed some jocular toasts. Suddenly, one of the guests, a stout baker, raised his glass and exclaimed, the health of our customers. This toast, like all others, was drunk joyfully and unanimously. The guests nodded to each other, the tailor to the bootmaker, the bootmaker to the tailor, the baker to them both, and all to the baker. Yurko, in the midst of his bowing, called out as he turned towards his neighbor. Now then, my friend, drink to the health of your corpses. Everybody laughed except the undertaker, 
who felt himself affronted and frowned. No one noticed this, and the guests went on drinking till the bells began to ring for evening service when they all rose from the table. The party had broken up late, and most of the guests were very hilarious. The stout baker with the bookbinder, whose face looked as if it were bound in red morocco, led Yurko by the arms to his sentry box, thus putting in practice the proverb, one good turn deserves another. The undertaker went home drunk and angry. How indeed, he exclaimed aloud, is my trade worse than any other? Is an undertaker own brother to the executioner? What have the infidels to laugh at? Is an undertaker a hypocritical buffoon? I should have liked to invite them to a housewarming to give them a grand spread, but no, that shall not be. I will ask my customers instead, my orthodox corpses. What, exclaimed the servant who at that moment was taking off the undertaker's boots. What is that, sir, you're saying? Make the sign of the cross. Invite corpses to your housewarming? How awful. I will certainly invite them, persisted Adrian, and not later than for tomorrow. Honor me, my benefactors, with your company tomorrow evening at a feast. I will offer you what God has given me. With these words, the undertaker retired to bed and was soon snoring. It was still dark when Adrian awoke. The shopkeeper, Triahina, had died in the night and her steward had sent a special message on horseback to inform Adrian of the fact. The undertaker gave him a grivnik for his trouble to buy vodka with, dressed hurriedly, took in his vostchik, and drove off to Raskale. At the gate of the dead woman's house, the police were already standing, and dealers in mourning goods were hovering around like ravens who have scented a corpse. The debunk was lying in state on the table, yellow like wax, but not yet disfigured by decomposition. Hear her in a crowd were relations, friends, and domestics. All the windows were open, wax tapers were burning, and the clergy were reading prayers. Adrian went up to the nephew, a young shopman in a fashionable surtout, and informed him that the coffin tapers, Paul, and the funeral paraphernalia in general would promptly arrive. The heir thanked him in an absent manner, saying that he would not bargain about the price, but leave it all to his conscience. The undertaker, as usual, vowed that his charges should be moderate, exchanged significant glances with the steward, and left to make the necessary preparations. The whole day was spent in traveling from Raskale to the Nikitsky gates and back again. Towards evening, everything was settled and he started home on foot after discharging his hired Isvostchik. It was a moonlit night and the undertaker got safely to the Nikitsky gates. At Yasnesnia, he met our acquaintance Yurko, who recognizing the undertaker, wished him good night. It was late. The undertaker was close to his house when he thought he saw someone approach the gates, open the wicket, and go in. What does it mean? 
thought Adrian. Who can be wanting me again? Is it a burglar? Or can my foolish girls have lovers coming after them? There is no telling. And the undertaker was on the point of calling his friend Yurko to his assistance when someone else came up to the wicket and was about to enter. But seeing the master of the house run towards him, he stopped and took off his three-cornered hat. His face seemed familiar to Adrian, but in his hurry, he had not been able to see it properly. You want me, said Adrian out of breath. Walk in if you please. Don't stand on ceremony, my friend, replied the other in a hollow voice. Go first and show your guests the way. Adrian had no time to waste on formality. The gate was open and he went up the steps followed by the other. Adrian heard people walking about in his rooms. What the devil is this? He wondered and he hastened to see. But now his legs seemed to be giving way. The room was full of corpses. The moon shining through the windows lit up their yellow and blue faces, sunken mouths, dim half-closed eyes, and protruding noses. To his horror, Adrian recognized in them people who he had buried, and in the guests who came in with him, the brigadier who had been interred during a pouring rain. They all, ladies and gentlemen, surrounded the undertaker, bowing and greeting him affably, except one poor fellow, lately buried gratis, who, ashamed of his rags, kept at a distance in the corner of the room. The others were all decently clad. The female corpses in caps and ribbons, the soldiers and officials in their uniforms, but with unshaven beards and the tradespeople in their best captains. Prorara, said the brigadier speaking on behalf of all the company. We have all risen to profit by your invitation. Only those have stopped at home who were quite unable to do otherwise, who have crumbled away and have nothing left but bare bones. Even among those, there was one who could not resist. He wanted so much to come. At this moment, a diminutive skeleton pushed his way through the crowd and approached Adrian. His death's head grinned affably at the undertaker. Shreds of green and red cloth and of rotten linen hung on him as on a pole, while the bones of his feet clattered inside heavy boots like pestles and mortars. You do not recognize me, Prohorov, said the skeleton. Don't you remember the retired sergeant in the guards, Peter Petrovich Kurilkin? Him to whom you in the year 1799 sold your first coffin and of deal instead of oak? With these words, the corpse stretched out his long arms to embrace him. But Adrian, collecting his strength, shrieked and pushed him away. Peter Petrovich staggered, fell over, and crumbled into pieces. There was a murmur of indignation among the company of corpses. All stood up for the honor of their companion, threatening and abusing Adrian till the poor man, deafened by their shrieks and quite overcome, lost his senses and fell unconscious among the bones of the retired sergeant of the guard. 
The sun had been shining for some time upon the bed on which the undertaker lay, when he at last opened his eyes and saw the servant lighting the samovar. With horror, he recalled all the incidents of the previous day. Triken, the brigadier, and the sergeant, Kirkland, passed dimly before his imagination. He waited in silence for the servant to speak and tell him what had occurred during the night. How have you slept, Adrian Prohovich? said Akisma, handing him his dressing gown. Your neighbor, the tailor, called, also the watchman, to say that today was Turco's name's day, but you were so fast asleep that we did not disturb you. Did anyone come from the late Triohina? The late? Is she dead then? What a fool! Didn't you help me yesterday to make arrangements for her funeral? Oh my! Are you mad? Or are you still suffering from last night's drink? You were feasting all day at the Germans. You came home drunk, threw yourself on the bed, and have slept till now when the bells have stopped ringing for mass. Really? exclaimed the undertaker, delighted at the explanation. Of course, replied the servant. Well, if that's the case, let us have tea quickly and call my daughters. Are you still up? Girl, good night. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.